0: Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we will be looking at the end of the garden narrative here at the end of Genesis chapter 3. The garden narrative that we began looking at back in chapter 2 with the creation of man, the divine imposition of the covenant of works upon the man in the garden, Then we saw the creation of the woman as the wife and helpmate of the man. And this narrative continued on from chapter 2 into chapter 3 with Satan's temptation of Eve and Adam, resulting in the fall of mankind into sin and misery. Last week, we looked at the curses and the consequences that followed from that fall, but we also saw that in the midst of this wickedness, we saw the hope of mankind. In the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. Well, this week we're going to be looking at the end of the garden narrative with the man and his wife being exiled east of the garden of Eden. Let's get started this morning by reading our passage. Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 20. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are going to be like many of our Arminian brothers and sisters and look, in this, look at this passage in just four points instead of five. Our first point this morning will be headship, where we will look briefly at verse 20 and Adam naming Eve. Our second point will be coverings, where we will look at God replacing Adam and Eve's fig leaves with animal skins in verse 21. Our third point will be the tree of life where we will look at verse 22 and learn more about this special tree in the middle of the garden, this covenant promise that Adam never enjoyed. And our last point this morning will be exile to the east where we will look at some themes that are found in verses 23 and 24 related to easterly direction, the cherubim, and the flaming sword. Before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer together, asking for his help. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name in our midst this morning. Father, we have gathered together as your people that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here among us as it is in heaven. Help us, Father, to hear your word, receive it as our daily bread. Calls it to nourish us and strengthen us. Calls it to increase our knowledge, which you have instructed us, increases our faith, which increases our obedience, and holiness. Father, help us to be nourished and to grow from your word. For Father, as we just sang, where else can we go? Where else could we go when we were lost in our trespasses and sins, but to you for the words of eternal life? And now that you have given us and now that you have made us new men and women, new creations in Christ, where else can we go to be conformed to his image? Where else can we go to be sanctified, to grow in holiness, but to your word? And Father, we know that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. So we come to you as your little children knowing and believing by faith in your promises that you are ready and that you are able to help us. Father, we plead with you to not only do these things among us, but to do them as well among our sister churches. We lift up our sister church Bible fellowship church in Greentown, Pennsylvania to you this morning. We also lift up our brothers and sisters here in Jefferson at Ash Alliance Church. Father, we ask that you would be with our brethren, that you would do among them what we desire for you to do among us, and that they would be encouragements and exhortations to us to live in this world in light of the one to come. And Father, as we plead with you for the unbelievers among us this morning, we plead likewise for the unbelievers among them. That you would cause your word to go forth in power, and that the lost would freely offer themselves to you. That you would grant them the gifts of repentance and faith, and that today would be the day of salvation. But Father, only you are able to do this, and we ask for it in your son's name. Father, we also lift up our persecuted brethren around the world this morning. We lift up our persecuted brethren in Algeria and northern Africa. Father, we thank you that you have planted the seed of the gospel among the Sunni Muslims in Algeria. We thank you for our brethren's bold evangelism near and around terrorist camps. Father, we thank you that in your great kindness you are granting repentance and faith to many Muslims. Father, we ask that you would continue to do so and that in your kind providences you would protect our brothers and sisters, that you would also, Lord, help them to hide your word in their heart not just that they would not sin against you, but because the government of Algeria frequently confiscates their Bibles. Oh, God, help them. Give them special measures of your grace that they could continue to be sanctified and to encourage one another through your word and through memorizing it. Oh, Lord, be with our brothers and sisters in Algeria this morning. And Father, as we turn our attention back to this passage that you have in your kindness put before us this morning, Father, help us to learn and to grow, help it not only to be just a 45 or 50-minute sermon that we listen to and some of us endure, but help us, Father, to Engage it. Help us seek to be doers and not just hearers of your word. That what we think and what we do on Sunday mornings would impact what we do the rest of the Lord's day, would impact what we do this coming week. And Father, that we would pour ourselves out this week so that we would come. Again, next week, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for refreshment, knowing that you are ready and able to give it to us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Kempis said in his book, Imitation of Christ, Thou oughtest so to order thyself and all thy thoughts and actions as if today thou wert about to die. Labor now to live so that at the hour of death thou mayest rather rejoice than fear. Last week we looked at the gospel promise back in verse 15 and this morning we begin the long haul of the history of redemption. The long haul of redemptive history which will require waiting thousands of years for the promise that we saw last week in Genesis 3.15 to be fulfilled. This morning that waiting begins with Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden, cut off from the tree of life, and that waiting will not end until the promise of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled, until this promised offspring is born and has the flaming sword of judgment fall upon him at the cross. Beloved, this morning we are embarking on a journey with Adam and Eve to the east, the Garden of Eden a journey that is going to take us through the rest of the book of Genesis, a journey that is a pilgrimage with many different men and women, saints and sinners, but through all of the varying details that we will look at east of Eden, we need to remember that this journey is about God accomplishing the redemption of a people for himself. This entire journey is a striving towards that promise that we looked at last week in Genesis 3.15. That, beloved, is why the Word of God exists. It is a divine revelation about the great acts of our God and Savior to accomplish the salvation of His elect. The Bible exists that we would tell the next generation. About the great acts of our God, as Psalm 78 says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Beloved, the Bible exists to inform us about what God has done to reconcile us to himself. It exists to inform us how we can find refuge, From the wrath that is to come because of the fall of man, and it exists to inform us how we can live in this world in a manner pleasing to our God as we await the return of our Savior. Morning, beloved, as we go through our passage, we need to be thankful that the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 has been so kind to us as to cross our paths. promised offspring has been so kind as to redeem us from the curse of sin and death, to redeem us from slavery to Satan. We should rejoice, beloved, that this morning as we consider what it must have been like for Adam and Eve to be exiled from their home, we should rejoice that in God's kind providences, we are so far removed from this event in history that we feel closer to our Savior's return in the skies from the east than we do to this exile of Adam and Eve to the east of Eden. And in that rejoicing, beloved, let us purpose to live our lives such that if today were to be the day that we go to meet our Savior, where our faith that we exercise now looking at the right hand of the Father at the right hand of the majesty on high, looking with eyes of faith. If today were to be the day that that faith was made sight, or if he returns for us on the clouds, let us purpose to worship him together today such that when that hour comes, we would, like the words of Thomas Kempis, be able to rejoice rather than fear. Let's get started this morning by looking at our first point in verse 20, headship. Look at verse 20 with me again. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. As we talked about at the end of chapter 2, when God gave Adam his helper and he named her woman, we must stress again that when Adam names his wife Eve, here in verse 20, he is not exercising dominion over her. Our passage is not proposing that fallen Eve was some kind of lesser animal now that must serve Adam in any way that he saw fit. Rather, Adam is exercising his rightful headship over his wife. Hearkening back to our passage last week in verse 16, in naming his wife Eve, Adam is ruling over her as the head of his family. And this in no way lessens Eve's importance, for we can see in the last half of verse 20 that she is the mother of all living. Before the fall, Adam names her woman because she was bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, She was taken from him. He was her source. He was from whence she came. We can see here in verse 20 that Adam gives her the name Eve in recognition of the fact that as his helper, all that are to come after them will come from her. She is the mother of all image bearers of God that will come after them. Most importantly, she is the mother who begins the, promi- the process of bringing the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 into the world. Eve is made in the image of God, and she is an indispensable helper for her husband, Adam. But God has given her the role of helper, and as a helper, she has a head who is to rule over her and love her and serve her for her eternal good. So, dear sisters in Christ, to those of you who are married or who one day desire to be married, just as a husband cannot please Christ as his king and savior, just as a husband cannot please him unless he leads his family in serving Christ, serving his kingdom in this world in and through the church that our king is building, just as this is true for men, it is also true wives. Dear sisters, you cannot please Christ as your king and savior if you are not submitting to your husband's leadership. You cannot please Christ as your king and savior if you are not being keepers of your home, if you are not loving and respecting your husband and loving your children. It is impossible because God is the one who determines roles and functions. And just as husbands have the responsibility to provide loving, self-sacrificing leadership if they were to please their king, you, dear sisters, have the responsibility to provide respectful, submissive followership. Young ladies who are yet to be married but do desire to be so one day, let this be instructive to you as you are thinking those thoughts. If your mothers are examples of this, then you should praise God. And you should imitate her as she follows Christ. If, your mother's, if you see your mother struggling to live in this way, then be instructed that you must not continue that pattern. Your mother's actions are no excuse for you to continue in that same vein, even if your mother struggles in this way because your father is struggling to love her as Christ loves the church. But whatever the case is, dear young sisters, it should be instructive to you that if you desire to be married, you desire to have a family in the future, if you desire to please your Savior and King in that marriage, then you should be pleading with Him now. You should be praying now. You should be asking for Christ to give you a husband one day that you can serve Him with joyfully. And when your time comes, when marriage is on the near horizon of your future, you should be looking for a man that you could joyfully submit to because you know that he will lead you for your eternal good. You must be looking for a man who is willing to pour himself out for you for the sake of your holiness, not just in order to please you and do whatever you desire, but for the sake of your eternal good, sisters. You must be looking for a man who you would joyfully labor to be the keeper of his home and who you would joyfully have as the father of your children, leading you and raising them in his disciplines and instructions. Dear young sisters who desire to one day be married, this, according to the word of God, is God's will for you. Let's move on to verse 21 now, having briefly covered headship, and look at our second point today, coverings. Look at verse 21 with me again. After Adam names Eve, we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Here in verse 21, we can see in seed form what becomes a much larger theme in scriptures. Here in verse 21, God creates a pattern of the shedding of blood to cover the nakedness and shame of mankind. We know that Adam and Eve had tried to cover their own nakedness with fig leaves. They tried to hide from God back in verse 7. Here in verse 21, we can see that God restores some level of fellowship with them here. He is the one here in verse 21 who removes the ingenuity of their own fig leaves and covers them with garments of skin. Beloved, what I want you to see here is the foundation, the seed form of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That wasn't created out of whole cloth from nowhere. Much like the Old Testament sacrifices of animals, the fact that either God kills or He has Adam and Eve kill this animal and then God clothes them with its skin indicates that God has restored some level of fellowship with them. He has made them ceremonially clean in order that they may worship Him and serve Him in their fallen estate east of Eden. This is where we need to think about the whole Bible because we're going to tie together what's happening here in our passage this morning to the entire sacrificial system of the old covenant, which leads to and see how it leads to the only sacrifice that has ever been made that secured eternal redemption. What I am saying here, what I want to say up front, is that this first sacrifice made Adam and Eve ceremonially clean so that they could be in God's presence, but it did not save them. If Adam and Eve were saved, then they were saved in the same way that we are saved. If Adam and Eve were saved, it was by believing the promise of Genesis 3.15 by faith that we looked at last week. Then why this sacrifice in verse 21 of our passage this morning? Well, it was to provide a picture of the shedding of blood that gives a covering And if Adam and Eve had faith in the promise of Genesis 3.15, then this sacrifice and clothing was a visible sign to them of that promise. Now moving on from the Garden of Eden for a moment to the people of Israel, the Mosaic sacrificial system functioned in the same way. We are instructed in Hebrews chapter 10 that this is the case. The first four verses of Hebrews 10 teach us that the blood of bulls and goats never have And never will take away sins for eternal redemption. Just as the blood of this animal here in the garden didn't take away Adam and Eve's sin, the blood of all the animals in the Mosaic sacrificial system did not take away the sins of the people of Israel for their salvation. What did it do then? The sacrifices of the Mosaic system provided a cleansing of their flesh in order that they may worship God and remain in the promised land that he had put them in. And we know this to be true because, as verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10 says, the Mosaic sacrificial system was a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. And as we will read in just a moment from Hebrews 9, The blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So get this picture from our passage. Adam and Eve clothed with the skin that came from an animal sacrifice, building on that Israel with an entire sacrificial system, but all of it just a shadow of a true reality. All of it was a shadow to teach us about what the promise of Genesis 3.15 was going to accomplish, and none of it could perfect those who drew near to God by them. This, beloved, was the stumbling stone laid in Zion that Paul talks about in Romans. The idea that apart from faith, one's heart could be far from God and that person could, without faith in God's Messiah, somehow be made right with God through works of the law, through the external actions of sacrificing animals, as though their blood, the blood of the animals was going to take away their sins, as though being ceremonially clean was the same thing as having eternal redemption. This Was the stumbling stone laid in Zion. Now turn in your Bibles real quickly to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and we don't have time to go into detail with the first 15 verses here, but I hope that you will spend some time today on this Lord's Day going through it and thinking about what we're talking about this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. You can see in verse 1 that the author of Hebrews is talking about the Mosaic Covenant because he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. You can see in verses 2 through 4 that he goes on to describe the tabernacle. In verse 5, we can see that he brings up a detail from our passage today when he mentions the cherubim over the mercy seat. If you look at verses 6 and 7, you can see that he talks about the regular sacrifices of the Mosaic system as well as the Day of Atonement that happened once a year. You can see at the end of verse 9 that these sacrifices could not perfect the conscience of the worshipers that drew nearby them. In verse 10, the Mosaic sacrificial system was not given in order for Israelites to be saved and receive eternal life by it, but that it was instituted as regulations for the body until the time of Reformation. Now read with me verses 11 through 15, and we're going to tie all this together. But when Christ appeared as a high priest over, of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Beloved, the point that I want us to see here this morning is that the blood of animals, whether here in the Garden of Eden or in the old covenant, the blood of animals was never meant to replace faith in the promise of Genesis three fifteen. Because as we just read in Hebrews 9, when the promise of Genesis three fifteen appeared, when Christ appeared as high priest, the shedding of his blood didn't just purify the flesh to make one ceremonially clean to worship and enter into God's presence. The shedding of Jesus' blood secured an eternal redemption that was promised here in Genesis. So having scratched the surface now here about the issue of faith and redemption, what can we learn from this scene here in the garden? For fallen Adam and Eve have their own covering stripped from them and receive a covering that comes from a sacrifice. Beloved, we should be instructed that we too have had the coverings of our own fig leaves, our own self-righteousness. We have had those coverings stripped away from us And we have been clothed with something far greater than what Adam and Eve were clothed with or what the saints in Israel were sprinkled with. Beloved, we haven't been clothed with shadowy things. We haven't been clothed with types. No, beloved, we have been clothed with the righteousness of our Savior Jesus Christ by his sacrifice. And like these garments of skin that were given to Adam and Eve, And like Israel with their sacrificial system, we too have a visible reminder of the sacrifice of Christ that secured our eternal redemption. Our baptism, beloved. Our baptism is a picture of us putting on Christ, a picture of us being clothed in him, or as Romans 6 puts it, our baptism is a picture of being united with him in his death, buried with him so that we might also rise with him. Just like Adam and Eve, beloved, could not trust in their garments of skin, and just like Israel could not stumble over the stumbling stone of pursuing righteousness by works of the law and the sacrificial system, beloved, we cannot make the mistake of those who believe in baptismal regeneration and trust that the waters of baptism are what save us. Though the act of baptism gives us eternal redemption, regardless of whether our hearts are far from God or full of faith. No, beloved, no man is saved by works. The waters of baptism are a wonderful picture and sign for us, but we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the unbeliever that goes through the waters of baptism without faith will only receive the same reward that Pharaoh did when he sought to go through the waters of the Red Sea. So now, beloved, while we remain here on this earth, outside the new heavens and earth as we await the resurrection, so that we will have the final purification of our flesh, what has been sown in corruption will be made incorruptible that we may, may not sin anymore while we wait for the putting off of this earthly tent. While we are waiting for that, we have been commanded, constantly strive in this life to put off the fig leaves of the old man and to put on the new. Paul instructs us of this in Ephesians 4, to put off the your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's move on now to the tree of life in our third point, looking at verse 22. Look at it with me. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And on the first half of verse 22, God affirms Satan's half-truth. He said back in verse 5, Man has indeed become like God. He does know good and evil. However, we must remember that man knows evil by experience. He knows evil experientially, which is a way in which that God does not know evil. We can also see here in verse 22 a seed form reference to the Trinity when we see God speaking and using the plural pronoun us. This is the same us that we spoke of in chapter 1 when God said, let us make a man in our image. But though we can see these things in verse 22, the obvious issue of this verse is the tree of life. And we can see in the second half of verse 22 that because of the fall, as a consequence of the fall, as a consequence of the breaking of the covenant of works, God's immediate concern is to cut off fallen man's access to the tree of life. We can also see in the language of verse 22 that man had never eaten from the tree of life. We spoke of this when we were looking at the covenant of works back in chapter 2. We talked about how God had given man liberty to eat from any tree of the garden, but they were forbidden from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they were to die. That tree represented the covenant curse of death. If Adam was to eat from it, We said that the tree of life didn't represent a covenant curse. The tree of life represented a covenant promise if Adam passed his period of probation. And this means that we should not have expected to see God forbid Adam from eating from the tree of life back in chapter 2 because the tree of life was not a tree that came with threats of punishment. The tree of life was a tree that came With a promise. It was a tree of reward for obedience during the time of probation. It's like the difference of telling your child that they cannot eat rat poisoning on the one hand, and on the other hand, telling them that they have to wait until they finish their supper before they can have dessert. Rat poisoning is explicitly forbidden. The other is not forbidden. It is not forbidden because there's no punishment. There's no consequences attached to it. There's no consequence of having to wait for it. It is just delayed until the child passes the probation of eating their supper. And this is how the tree of life functioned as the tree of promise in the covenant of works. And we see that affirmed here in the language of verse 22. We can see that after God says that man knows good and evil, he says, now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Adam had eaten from the forbidden tree and God says here that he is cutting Adam off from the tree of promise, lest he take also. Adam had not yet eaten from the tree of life. He had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now God is making sure that in his sinful estate, he doesn't make a dash for the refrigerator in order to eat from the tree of life because, as we can see at the end of verse 22, we can see that what would happen if Adam eats from it. We can see at the end of verse 22 that God is cutting Adam off from this tree so that he doesn't eat from it and live forever in his cursed estate. Just as one bite from the tree of testing meant death, so too one bite from the tree of promise would mean living forever. And Adam lost this privilege when he broke the covenant of works. He lost his dessert because he failed to finish his supper as we move on to verse 23, we can see in the first word of verse 23, therefore, that Adam's sin in breaking the covenant of works, his fall and his loss of access to the tree of promise, this is why God kicked him out of the Garden of Eden. There's actually a little wordplay here in the Hebrew that's hard to pick up on in English. When verse 23 says God sent him out from the garden, it is the same verb, from verse 22, where it says, lest he reach out his hand, meaning that God is sending Adam out of the garden so that Adam doesn't send out his hand or reach out his hand and eat from the tree of life. Let's move on to verse, to our last point today and look at the work that Adam has to do east of Eden. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me again. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he, was placed, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we've seen Adam and Eve, we've seen God clothe them with animal skins, we've seeing that they did not enjoy the promise of the tree of life, now in our last two verses today, we can see that God drives the man out of the garden. The fact that God drives Adam out seems to indicate that Adam had no desire to leave the garden. It was God that sent him out. Sin had taken from Adam more than he wanted to give. It had cost him more than he thought it was going to. Sin had taken his home and God sent him out of the garden towards the east. Adam's punishment has begun. Adam is suffering the consequences of his sin. He must work in exile. He must work in an environment that is going to yield thorns and thistles to his labors. He must work the dust from which he was taken until he returns to it. Now there's actually actually some interesting theology in an unexpected place here in verse 24. If you read your Bible and pay attention to this detail, you will see that in the Bible, going east is hardly ever a good thing. Here, Adam is driven out and exiled from his home to the east. We're going to see in chapter 4 that after Cain murders his brother Abel, that after being cursed by God, he goes further east away from the presence of the Lord. Genesis chapter 13, Lot looks to the east over the valley with his uncle Abraham. And Moses says in chapter 13 that that, that Lot saw that that land looked to him like the garden of the Lord. And then Lot separates from Abraham and journeys east into the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Later on in Genesis 25, Abraham, before his death, sends the sons of his concubines toward the east so that they will be away from the son of promise, Isaac. So in the Bible, while going east is almost always a bad thing, we can see in a couple of instances where coming from the east is a very good thing. It's almost as if this theme develops in Scripture that going eastward represents exile while coming from the east represents redemption. We can see it perhaps most prominently in the birth of Christ, and it should be no accident or should be no surprise to us that when the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 comes into the world, we begin seeing this theme play out when Jesus was born, I don't think it's an accidental detail that Matthew gives us in his gospel that wise men came from where? They came from the east. And when they came from the east, they were coming towards redemption. And when they came, what did they do? They gave gifts to this newborn Messiah, and they bowed down, and they worshiped this promised offspring. We can also see this theme coming from the east in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 when he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Beloved, our redemption will come from the east. Now, while that's an interesting aspect of our passage this morning that gets picked up on, In other parts of the Bible, the main point of these last two verses is God driving the man out of the garden and preventing him from having access to the tree of life. And we can see, if you look at verse 24, that God drives the man out of the garden. We can see that he makes sure that man will not have access to the tree of life, and he does so by placing the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. An angel with a sword of judgment turned in every direction to prevent man from coming back to the garden from any direction. What a miserable estate Adam has brought himself and all his posterity into. He who had been given the charge in chapter 2 of Genesis to work and to keep and to guard the garden from unauthorized intruders now becomes one. Kept from entrance into the garden. So Adam is kept out of the garden and away from his only means of living forever, now hidden behind a flaming sword of judgment. As we close today, beloved, and get ready to spend some time in prayerful reflection on our passage, we can see that even here, in this desperate situation, even here, there is hope, beloved. Adam and Eve's hope east of the Garden of Eden was the same as ours is today. Their hope was found in that promised offspring, who would crush the head of the serpent and in order that we might have access to the tree of life and live forever, that promised offspring is the one who would have this flaming sword of judgment that guarded the way to the tree of life. He is the one who would have it fall on himself so that now only the shadow of death would pass over us. The sword of judgment here that the garden becomes represented in Israel by the threat of death behind the curtain that guarded the holiest of holy places in the temple, and it is no accident that that curtain that guarded the holiest of holy places had cherubim embroidered on it. we, We can see the development of this in Israel and the fact that only on the Day of Atonement could a high priest the highest representative of the people of Israel, only he could enter into this holy of holy places and only with the blood of a sacrifice. And only after being washed with pure water, only after putting on holy garments, could he enter in behind the cherubim. Beloved, after our Savior makes full atonement We know that when he died on the cross, when he who is life had let the flaming sword of God's judgment fall upon him, we know that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. So that we had access now to the holiest of holy places. We have access not to the shadowy things, but to the true realities. And now, beloved, we have access to them by faith. But because of what our Savior has accomplished for us, one day we will have access to them by sight. Beloved, now we, Christ's sheep, have access to the holy places through him, not into a temple that was made by human hands, but into the heavenly temple where our God's dwelling place is. So as we close, I want you to hear these parallels from the book of Hebrews and Revelation. And I want you to be encouraged and have your faith strengthened as you hear these things, parallels from our passage today and the things that we've talked about. Here first from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Be encouraged, beloved, that because of what our Savior has accomplished for us, when he returns and takes us to be with Him for all eternity in the new heavens and earth, we can see in Revelation 22 that He has purchased for us unhindered access to the tree of life for all eternity. Hear the words of God from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, beloved. What a savior we have. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of this Savior, trusting completely, fully, wholly in what he has accomplished for us, that he has given us now access by faith into the holiest of holy places, that throne room where you are enthroned and where he sits at your right hand, interceding for us now. And Father, we long for that day when he will return from the east and he will go as far as the west and he will take us to be where he is that forever our faith will be made sight. Oh, Father, thank you that you have not clothed us with animal skins, that you have not purified us with the blood of bulls and goats, that you have not put on us shadowy things, but that you have given us the true realities. And Father, help us as your people to never stumble over the stumbling stone that you laid in Zion. Help us never seek to approach you now as though we were somehow ceremonially clean by doing this, that, or the other thing, but help us to approach you by faith in the righteousness of the one who's redeemed us and clothed us and his righteousness with the one who knew no sin but became sin that we might become his righteousness oh father help us to approach you by faith in him alone and help us father as we now strive in this world while we wait for our savior to return from these help us now to put off the fig leaves And having been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to strive after that holiness and that obedience, without which no one will see your face. Father, help us to be your people, set apart in this world, set apart from this world, and help us be useful to this world. Help us to learn that our usefulness to this world is our distinction and difference from it. That we do not have the mind of Western civilization. We have the mind of Christ. Oh, Father, help us to live according to the mind of Christ, that we might be your ambassadors. Ambassadors not of this world not of this fallen world where the curse of sin and death and Satan still reigns, but ambassadors of the one to come. Ambassadors of a world where there is no sin, where there is no death, and where our King reigns forever. Help us, Father, as we meditate on these things over the next few minutes to be thankful. Help these thoughts to inform our lives, to inform in just a few moments how we will sing praises to you. Help them to inform how we receive the benediction, the announcement of your blessing upon your people through the mouth of your under-shepherd, our beloved Pastor Scott. Help us, Father, now to realize that now, in this world, we receive it by faith, hope, and conviction of things unseen. Help us receive it in that faith, longing for that day where our faith will be made sight, where we will no longer have to, receive and hear the blessings of our under shepherds that we are grateful for them, the one that we long for, the blessing of our chief shepherd. When he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's rest. Oh, Father, that is the one we strive after. That is the one that we long for. Help us to live in this world in light of that one to come. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.